The Big Fat Lie. Don't fall for it. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday sermon of June 21st, 2020 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. Reverend David Pelegi, on the third Sunday after Pentecost, speaks about the big lie that infects millions in the West and other parts of the world, a lie that has been magnified by an unprecedented form of secularism that advocates human flourishing as its only objective, and nothing can be allowed to stand in its way. In stark contrast to this culture of self-aggrandizement, Jesus tells us to pick up our cross, to sacrifice and to deny ourselves. Bearing the cross is an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus, and it is in losing our life for his sake that we find wholeness, meaning, maturity, joy, and so much more. Before we begin, we have a special invitation for you, our loyal listeners. Because of the recent limitations on gathering in person, Deacon Aaron Imey has been hosting our weekly Deuteronomy Bible study via Zoom. We'd like to invite you to participate in the Bible study in real time on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Israel time, 5 p.m. UK time, noon U.S. Eastern time. If you would like to join Aaron on Wednesdays, please message us through Facebook Messenger. We look forward to seeing some of you. We continue our worship through the public reading and study of the Word of God. And before we read from the prophets, the epistles, and the gospels. We want to hear God's voice as we prepare our hearts to be quiet and also to ready ourselves to listen to God speak. There's a prayer called the Collect. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The first reading is from the book of Romans, beginning in the second part of verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 20, verses 7 to 13. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I, and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder. Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart, like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side, Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as we follow an ancient Christian tradition and honor the teaching of the Messiah through the gospel according to Matthew chapter 10. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Baalzevul, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, 
him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, once upon a time, before Corona, we were praying for air conditioning. Now we're just praying to pay the light bill. <laughs> so perhaps in another generation or another decade, air conditioning will come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we come and sit at the feet of your son, Jesus. Teach us, teach us, instruct us, guide us, direct us, and empower us to be obedient to those things that you ask. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we pick up a cross and follow you and deny ourselves, we indeed pray that you will save us from this wicked and perverse generation in which we live. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, let me start by telling you that um, it's a lie. I think Bonnie agrees with me. It's a lie. It's a big, fat, stinking, if I can use that word, filthy lie. It's an old lie, but it's a lie that is now back in full force, and uh, it's probably multiplied uh, a billion times. And that lie is very simple, as I said, very ancient and yet very, very modern. The purpose of existence, we tell ourselves, the reason I'm here, the reason that I was made, is very simple. It's to be happy. It's to be fulfilled. It's to be all that I was meant to be. It uh, is to be as... Uh, little inconvenience as possible. It's to realize my full potential and to throw off anything or uh, oppose anything that gets in the way. That's the lie. 
That's the lie. And as I said, it has been intensified. You have a problem with the microphone. I, liked, I love feedback. It makes me feel like a rock star, you know. <laughs> and I could never play guitar, but at least. So the lie is, you know, I'm made to be happy. And what intensifies the lie, yes, is the, ver- the version of humanism, yes, that is so prevalent and prominent in the day and age in which we live. And we live in a time that the goal of life for millions of people is really simple. Yes, it's human flourishing. It's all about my development, my growth. Yes, again, my potential, my identity. And never before in human history have we had an ideology such as this that's been so uh, pervasive. And it's an ideology that doesn't really make reference or take its authority from anything outside of ourselves. We are the ones, yes, we are the ones who are going to decide, yes, what is our identity. We're the ones who are um, going to uh, construct who we are. And in that construction, which we, in which we modern, most modern people make no reference or have no connection with the scripture or with God himself, it's, we take a little bit of this and we take a little bit of that. So maybe there's a little bit of Buddhism, maybe there's a little bit of Jesus, you know, throw in some John Lennon for good measure and stir it up. Yeah, yes, with OS 13. Is that the latest operating system for a Macintosh computer? And next week, you know, let's make a new salad. Because after all, we do contain so many multitude, multitude of... uh, identities. And in the process of following my own heart, following my own unique way, yes, nothing should stand in opposition. So no outside authority, no morality, no tradition, no political system or political ideology, no economic system, yes. And if it does, if there's something, yes, that somehow is preventing me from being the person that I'm supposed to be, yes, the emphasis is on I'm defining myself, then guess what? That opposition needs to be destroyed. It needs to be deconstructed. It needs to be shouted down. Yes, it needs to be made illegal. Do you want to say, um, you know, giving 12-year-old girls hormone blockers 
because they believe that somehow at age 12 that uh, they are males. Well, you will create a firestorm because after all, every 10-year-old or 11-year-old Yes, has the right, yes, to be, yes, whoever they think they should be. And that's the world in which we live. It's a very frightening, frightening world. And this old lie compounded by a new humanism, which if you talk to um, cultural historians such as... um, Charles Taylor. I don't know if anyone's ever read Charles Taylor, a Canadian theologian, a philosopher. Nothing like this has ever happened before in history. You've had competing religious ideas or competing spiritual ideas, but an entire worldview built on self? This is pretty radically new. Now, According to the Bible, in 3,000 years of tradition, which may not impress a lot of people, but according to, well, maybe I I should even back up slightly, because the question is, yes, where is God in all of this? Yes, where God is not the one who's determining or establishing an identity, yes, God is not the one who is some form of authority. Yes. Uh, God is, for most people, in this new system, new system of human flourishing, belief in God is unimaginable. And if, by chance, someone does believe in God, God is just kind of up there to help me. Yes, with my human flourishing. But he's certainly not supposed to get in the way. And he's certainly not supposed to make any demands on us. And if we, we might very easily sit in church and say, oh, those poor people out there and the stuff that they believe. But unfortunately, this ideology or this way of looking at the world is so strong and it's so powerful that it permeates social media, it permeates the universities, it permeates the political arena, and please don't say it's only about the liberals. It is not about, it's, it's, it's amongst conservatives and liberals and moder- moderates, yes. It is pervasive, yes, throughout the business world, And it is pervasive in the church. It is pervasive in the church. How many times have you heard? Yep. I'm just, you don't hear it in quite these words, but let's be blunt. Yeah, I'm just being, I'm a Christian and I go to church so I can realize my full potential. I go to, I'm a Christian, go to church because I need God to provide financially for me. I need God to find me a husband. Yes. I need, you know, I need God to fix me up. 
And we very often have a therapeutic view, a, ther- a therapeutic Christianity. And again, which God isn't all that present and centered in the life of many believers, but you know, he's an insurance policy and we can call upon him when we're in trouble because we know he's good and merciful. Kind of reminds me of the people of Israel, you know, during the time of the judges. Yeah, whenever things got going, whenever things were really bad, they would call upon the Lord. But in the meantime, they did what was right in their own eyes. And the church itself, yes, in part, is corrupted with this kind of understanding. Now, if you want, if, if you want, if we want to ask the question biblically, with 3,000 years of biblical tradition behind us, what is the purpose of life, or why are we here? What is the reason for our existence? It's pretty radically opposite than what most people today, most the average man or woman in the street might tell you. Yeah? Because I believe that the answer to that question is holiness. The reason, yes, that we're here is to become holy or to be a holy people. Now, I know holiness gets a bad rap, and oftentimes we, when we think in terms of holiness, we think only in terms of the honky-tonk sins, which is uh, not something that should be necessarily excluded, but holiness is not an end in itself. The goal of holiness, the goal of holiness is to enable us to enter in, yes, to a relationship with the Lord. To enter into that place of intimacy. To enter in, actually, not only to intimacy, but enter into a place of wholeness. Actually, the goal of holiness is human flourishing. It's not that God is somehow... a a mean old man who doesn't care about human needs. God actually does want us to flourish. If you read the book of Genesis, especially the opening chapters on creation, in which God declares creation is good and tells human beings to be fruitful and multiply, he wants us to flourish. But his way of flourishing, yes, is not, yes, Anywhere uh, you might say the, that, that, that highway or that road to flourishing, to God's flourishing, yes, to God's bringing us to a place of maturity and completeness is radically different than what we see in the world today. And the way that we go towards holiness Yes, the road of holiness is the road of discipleship. And that's what we read about. Yes, that's our reading from Matthew chapter 10. And all through the summer, we have numerous passages, okay, about, yes, that, well, numerous passages from Matthew's gospel that tell us who is Jesus, 
And what does it mean to be his disciple? And uh, chapter 10 is, uh, is quite an amazing uh, verse, uh, chapter in and of itself, because it starts, really it starts at the end of chapter 9, uh, and it tells us here that Jesus looks uh, out over the people, his own people, and he has compassion on them. He has compassion on them because they are lost. They are sheep without shepherds. And then it, he calls the disciples together and he sends them out. Yes, because he is heartbroken. Yes, for the human condition, the, the spiritual condition of his own people. And he tells them, I want you to do certain things. And sometimes these certain things can seem a bit odd uh, or a bit unusual. But if you think about it for just a moment, this is, Jesus is asking his disciples, his emissaries, to do exactly what he's been doing, to live the exact same way and to expect, yes, the same consequences. So he calls 12, and he says, don't go to the towns of the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's what Jesus himself said earlier. He said, uh, I'm called to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later, he will send his disciples out to the nations. But surely Jesus, I don't surely is not the word, without question, Jesus understands, yes, that the people of Israel were chosen to serve the nations. That God revealed himself to Israel, and after revealing himself to Israel, Israel it was Israel's job to re reveal God to all the nations of the world. And then Jesus says, you know, preach the kingdom or, or proclaim the kingdom. And the kingdom, uh, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is healing the sick, cleansing those who have leprosy, driving out demons. And Jesus tells his disciples to do exactly it says, do not take uh, along any gold or silver. And uh, Jesus himself, as he, as he went from place to place, actually relied on donations. And he relied on hospitality that uh, people gave him and his movement. Um, and then he goes on to say, you'll be arrested. You'll be imprisoned. You'll be flogged. And basically, these are all things that happened to Jesus. And in verse 21, it comes to uh, something very painful and sometimes very difficult. You will be rejected or perhaps only misunderstood by your own family, just as Jesus was misunderstood by his own family. Ooh, that hurts. And finally... Not quite finally. Jesus makes it really clear in verse 23. He says, a student, which is a disciple, is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Yes. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. And then Jesus says, after telling them all these things, do not be afraid. And maybe we'll come back to the reassurances in a minute. 
And then finally, we go down a little bit, to, at least to the end of our reading. Again, he warns us he did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And a sword here is not uh, to be understood as it sometimes has in past Christian history, is not a justification for war, nor is this a justification for violence or launching a campaign or a crusade. It's simply to say that people will be divided, even members of a family, over Jesus himself. And again, painful and difficult, but even more difficult, he says, anyone who's not worthy of me, yes, or anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Because even though Jesus was flogged and rejected and brought before authorities, ultimately, he goes to the cross and we have reduced discipleship to a program very often. And that program is, can be a really good program. It can include things like memorizing Bible verses, hiding God's word in our heart. That's a wonderful thing to do. Participating in prayer meetings, sharing our faith with other people, serious Bible study, those are great things. But ultimately, ultimately, discipleship is about carrying a cross. It's about, and here I don't think Jesus is talking about literal death, although that has happened in Christian history at different times or in the history of the church, but it's about self-denial. That's what it means to be a disciple. Yes, not always to get our own way. Yeah. To put Jesus and his priorities first. Or in the words of the last single released by you two, yes, get out of your own way. Meaning, shrink back or pull back so the way of the cross is the way of discipleship. And ultimately, it's very interesting, is it not? Jesus says, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. If you try to, if you give your life away, actually, you will gain it. Now think about the world in which we live. The world in which we live this idea of human flourishing, this idea of you know, wanting to develop, wanting to be unique, wanting to be an individual, all of this has become the goal for hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people. This is the only goal. Now, maybe it hasn't come to the Middle East, or come to Asia, uh, parts of Asia, but it is certainly the dominant, dominant way of thinking and living in the West. 
And guess what the enemy of human flourishing is? The enemy is death. Because when you get to the grave, all the courses of self-improvement that you took, all the hours you spent in the gym, all the special diets you went on, all the music lessons you took, they're gone. You've lost. By the way, in the process, yes, in the process, this world of, uh, of, you might say, this world that is absorbed or focused, you know, on the I, me, me, mine is a world that's empty. And there's no real ultimate meaning to life. And there's no ultimate meaning and life becomes mundane. And people do kind of struggle or they do kind of think about transcendence to think about somehow God. But because of the world in which we live and the ideology and the lie and deception, it's hard for us, hard for many people to believe. Yes? But what's the opposite? The opposite is that if we give ourselves away, if we live for others, if, um, what shall we say, um, uh, s- flourishing, self-flourishing, yes, <clears throat> isn't the goal. And we weep with those who weep, or we forgive those who offend us, or we love our enemies, or we're willing to take the back seat and not the front seat. That the message of Jesus is that when we do these things, actually life becomes more precious and life actually becomes more valuable. And even as we'll read next week, even something as simple as giving a cup of water to a disciple of Jesus, someone on the mission, someone in the Jesus movement, has an eternal reward. Meaning, our sacrifice or a giving of ourselves, yes, the ability to glory in our weakness, because that is when we glory in the cross and the foolishness of the cross. These have eternal consequences in the lives of people and ultimately when we stand before God the Father. And by the way, it's not all about what happens when we get to heaven because Jesus, uh, in both Matthew and Luke's gospel, he tells the the disciples, there is a reward for following me. And some of the reward is in this life and some of the reward is in the life to come. And so, discipleship and the way of a disciple stands in contradiction yes, to the society, to the culture, yes, to the spirit of the age in which we live. And I'd just like to remind you, yes, of one or two uh, 
one or two other things. Um, because it's the how, not just the what, that, uh, you know, that is, in, that is extremely important. And it's important for us to remember because, again, we, can t- we also can be easily influenced by the culture in which we live. The spirit of the age is in the drinking water and it's in the air that we breathe. And so if our culture, and, the, and Hollywood especially, and all the pop songs tells us, you know, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. Discipleship t- tells us, you know, exactly the opposite. Actually, discipleship t- tells us to follow somebody to follow a person, and that person has authority, and that person that we actually should model our lives, yes, on that person. We should be mentored by that person. We should imitate that person, not so that our personality disappears, because God uh, loves diversity, and he made each one of us different. And God forbid that we would become clones or we would act alike or dress alike or think alike. That becomes a cult. And the God of heaven and earth does not uh, want a bunch of cult followers, even though some religious movements, you know, might suggest otherwise. Yes, we're not constructing our own identity. Instead, we affirm the identity found in Genesis that we're made uh, in the image of God. And we are called to be followers of Jesus. We are called to respond to, the, to Jesus who invites each one of us with these words, come and follow me. That's where we take our identity, in God and in Christ. We... Um, don't decide or choose what we want to believe. Yes, but instead, we not only uh, take the words of Scripture as authority, but we follow the, the teaching of the apostles. And the teaching of the apostles that has been handed down from generation to generation uh, in the church itself. And we live in a time... We live in a time, yes, which, in which the individual is king. We live uh, in an age, even in the church, which people can say, I don't do church. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I have my own thing going with Jesus. Uh, I, I watch Hillsongs on YouTube, and, uh, you know, I serve myself communion. But I, I don't want to belong to any kind of a church. Yes. This is um, very popular in the world in which we live, but by the standards and the teaching of the New Testament, it's a lie. If we reject the people of Jesus, if we reject his community, if we refuse, yes, to um, be a part of the church, we really can't be Christians, nor can we be followers of Jesus. 
It's absolutely impossible. It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and have no accountability. It doesn't work. Oh, part of our age, everything has to be authentic. Yes, I've got to be me. I've got to let my messiness hang out. I've got to show you my brokenness. I have to show you how dysfunctional I am. I have to confess to you my sin, you know, how I cheated on my wife or, you know, how I, you know, uh, rigged the exam- my law school examination. And so confession is in. Confession is in. And a part of this, by the way, is doubt. <laughs> if you doubt something, especially if you doubt religion or you doubt uh, Christianity or you somehow you were a Republican and then you reject it you were an evangelical and you say now I'm finished with it for one reason or another then you become a hero there's nothing heroic, heroic about doubt it exists and we should as a community, understand people who are going through doubts, we shouldn't turn them into heroes. So confession is big because it's a part of authenticity. But what's missing in all of this is repentance and transformation. Look at all the... If you're British, read the Daily Mail where you can read all these confessions, right, Freya? And all the smut and all the dirt about people. And people are pretty much proud of what they've done. Or rarely do you ever hear anyone expressing remorse because they walked out on their wife. Yes. Or they left their kids. Or whatever, you know, whatever it was. There's no repentance and there's no transformation. Yes. The beginning the beginning of discipleship, the way that we enter the kingdom of heaven is through repentance. And we follow Jesus and imitate him and model our lives on his life or on those, who, uh, those in our lives who uh, successfully follow Jesus in order to be transformed. So what do we say to a world that's really not all that interested in God? Not all that interested, perhaps, in transformation, maybe, uh, to a world that um, virtually lives in a closed system, although sometimes there are echoes of transcendence echoes of the gospel, of, of Jesus, of the presence of God that people have radically pushed out of their lives. Well, I think the first and foremost is that um, we as a church and as a community, we need to purify ourselves. We need to make sure that uh, we have not bought into the lie. Now, when I say we haven't bought it, I, I don't mean that everything in modern culture is bad. There's a lot of wonderful aspects of the world in which we live. 
Not all art or music is bad, something, something that we should shun. Uh, a lot of this has come to us through uh, the understanding of therapy. Therapy in and of itself is not bad. It actually can be quite helpful if uh, put to the right use. So I'm not rejecting all of that. But, this, but the lie that we're here to be happy and that the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of self-fulfillment is the main goal, that's what we need to reject. And we need to realize that we're in a battle. There is an ideological war going on. Now, I don't like the fact that there's an ideological war. Uh, It seems, especially to me, very daunting because this is an incredibly, incredibly big, yes, ideology. Uh, and humanly speaking, they have all the, all the resources, yes, at their disposal. The press, big tech, the business communities, the political systems of the world. You know, it's a little bit like David and Goliath in the Valley of Elah. What do we do? In the men's group, we're reading 2 Corinthians. And this week, I was struck by 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we have these words. Paul talking to the church there that is questioning his his authority. He says, uh, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The weapons of our warfare, we are in a war. And let's pretend that we're not. And by the way, the casualties are many. And the damage, yes, uh, is disastrous. Because in this world of uh, desiring self-flourishing or desiring human flourishing and nothing more comes confusion and chaos that destroys the lives of millions of people. And so, what do we do? Notice the war here is not about the demonic. It's not about waving a banner and blowing a shofar and hoping, you know, that uh, this is is our form of uh, spiritual warfare. It's ideological. And it says that we confront these strongholds. What is a stronghold? Stronghold is not only a fortress, but the same Greek word that means a fortress means um, a um, prison, and it's related to the word tomb. And it's a beautiful analogy of where, yes, the human uh, 
maybe tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, yes, uh, can be found. They're in a prison, which ultimately will be a tomb. And it says we take captive. Now, what is how the, the word take captive there in Greek is that we attack with a spear, meaning we go on the offensive. And if we think about it for a moment, what's the only offensive weapon mentioned in the New Testament, spiritually speaking? Yes. What is it? Right. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Yeah? It is the Scripture and the Word of God, yes, that will cause these ideologies to fall. Now, Again, it'd be really easy to think, I'm going out there and I'm going to preach to them. I'm going to show them this verse in John and they're going to fall on their knees and they're going to be convinced. Now, that may be true in some cases. But my dear friends, if we want to present the truth, if we really want to present an alternative to the um, dead end, of human flourishing. Yes, where there's no transcendence and no God and no understanding where human good comes from and no understanding of beauty or the purpose of life, then we better live the truth. It's not just about speaking the truth. It's about providing and showing, yes, a very viable alternative to life. It's about showing that picking up a cross, which seems foolish and counterintuitive, actually brings meaning and significance to life. That sacrifice, self-denial, suffering actually brings joy, not misery. It actually brings holiness, which brings us into a place of freedom. So remember, Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if you keep on being my disciple, if you keep on following me, if you keep on imitating me, if you model yourself after me, if you do what I do, yes, which is a process, then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Quote the whole verse. Yes, quote the whole verse. Set me free from what? Anxiety about my future? Yes. The need to have the latest new car and be cool? You know, the being locked up in bitterness, having, pri having my pride and ego control, you know, my family life and mess things up. Free me from my pornography addiction. Free me from my racism or my ethnic nationalism that I have to take an identity from, you know, from such a thing and give me an identity in God and an identity, identity in Christ. It's when we live that out that we'll provide the alternative. 
And that is indeed our challenge. Yes, it is indeed that in this ideological war, we need to preach the truth, but just as importantly, we need to live the truth. As it says, not only in John's gospel, but in the epistles, yes, it talks about us doing the truth. And so may God give us grace and mercy, yes, not to shrink back, not to lose confidence in the gospel and confidence in the cross itself. And may God give us, yes, by the way, may God give us mercy and power not to compromise. And may he give us the, you know, that power you know, to be intentional and live out our discipleship. Amen. The Big Fat Lie. Don't fall for it. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of June 21st, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. Reverend David Pelegi, on the third Sunday after Pentecost, speaks about the big lie that infects millions in the West and other parts of the world, a lie that has been magnified by an unprecedented form of secularism that advocates human flourishing as its only objective, and nothing can be allowed to stand in its way. In stark contrast to this culture of self-aggrandizement, Jesus tells us to pick up our cross, to sacrifice, and to deny ourselves. Bearing the cross is an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus, and it is in losing our life for his sake that we find wholeness, meaning, maturity, joy, and so much more. Before we begin, we have a special invitation for you, our loyal listeners. Because of the recent limitations on gathering in person, Deacon Aaron Imey has been hosting our weekly Deuteronomy Bible study via Zoom. We'd like to invite you to participate in the Bible study in real time on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Israel time, 5 p.m. UK time, noon U.S. Eastern time. If you would like to join Aaron on Wednesdays, please message us through Facebook Messenger. We look forward to seeing some of you. We continue our worship through the public reading and study of the Word of God. And before we read from the prophets, the epistles, and the gospels, we want to hear God's voice so we prepare our hearts to be quiet and also to ready ourselves to listen to God speak. There's a prayer called the Collect. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The first reading is from the book of Romans, beginning in the second part of verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? 
Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. second reading is taken from the book of Jeremiah chapter 20 verses 7 to 13. O Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, and see the mind and heart. Let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as we follow an ancient Christian tradition and honor the teaching of the Messiah through the gospel according to Matthew chapter 10. A disciple 
is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Baalzevul, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, once upon a time... Before Corona, we were praying for air conditioning. Now we're just praying to pay the light bill. <laughs> so perhaps in another generation or another decade, air conditioning will come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we come and sit at the feet of your son, Jesus. Teach us, teach us, instruct us, guide us, direct us, and empower us to be obedient to those things that you ask. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we pick up a cross and follow you and deny ourselves, we indeed pray that you will save us from this wicked and perverse generation in which we live. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, let me start by telling you that um, it's a lie. I think Bonnie agrees with me. It's a lie. It's a big, fat 
stinking, if I can use that word, filthy lie. It's an old lie, but it's a lie that is now back in full force and uh, it's probably multiplied uh, a billion times. And that lie is very simple, as I said, very ancient, and yet very, very modern. The purpose of existence, we tell ourselves, the reason I'm here, the reason that I was made, is very simple. It's to be happy. It's to be fulfilled. It's to be all that I was meant to be. It uh, is to be as uh, little inconvenience as possible. It's to realize my full potential and to throw off anything or uh, oppose anything that gets in the way. That's the lie. That's the lie. And as I said, it has been intensified. Do we have a problem with the microphone? I, like, I love feedback. It makes me feel like a rock star, you know. And I could never play guitar, but at least. So the lie is, you know, I'm made to be happy. And what intensifies the lie, yes, is the, ver- the version of humanism, yes, that is so prevalent and prominent in the day and age in which we live. And we live in a time that the goal of life for millions of people is really simple. Yes, it's human flourishing. It's all about my development, my growth. Yes, again, my potential, my identity. And never before in human history have we had an ideology such as this that's been so pervasive. And it's an ideology that doesn't really make reference or take its authority from anything outside of ourselves. We are the ones, yes, we are the ones who are going to decide, yes, what is our identity. We're the ones who are um, going to uh, construct who we are. And in that construction, which we, in which we modern, most modern people make no reference or have no connection with the scripture or with God himself, it's, we take a little bit of this and we take a little bit of that. So maybe there's a little bit of Buddhism, maybe there's a little bit of Jesus, you know, throw in some John Lennon for good measure and stir it up. Yeah, yes, with OS 13. Is that the latest operating system for a Macintosh computer? And next week, you know, let's make a new salad. Because after all, we do contain so many multitude, multitude of... uh, identities. And in the process of following my own heart, 
following my own unique way, yes, nothing should stand in opposition. So no outside authority, no morality, no tradition, no political system or political ideology, no economic system, yes. And if it does, if there's something, yes, that somehow is preventing me from being the person that I'm supposed to be, yes, the emphasis is on I'm defining myself, then guess what? That opposition needs to be destroyed. It needs to be deconstructed. It needs to be shouted down. Yes, it needs to be made illegal. Do you want to say, um, you know, giving 12-year-old girls hormone blockers because they believe that somehow at age 12 that uh, they are males? Well, you will create a firestorm. Because after all, every 10-year-old or 11-year-old, yes, has the right, yes, to be, yes, whoever they think they should be. And that's the world in which we live. It's a very frightening, frightening world. And this old lie compounded by a new humanism, which if you talk to um, cultural historians such as um, Charles Taylor, I don't know if anyone's ever read Charles Taylor, a Canadian theologian, a philosopher, and nothing like this has ever happened before in history. You've had competing religious ideas or competing spiritual ideas, but an entire worldview built on self, this is pretty radically new. Now, according to the Bible, in 3,000 years of tradition, which may not impress a lot of people, but according to, well, maybe I, I should even back up slightly, because the question is, yes, where is God in all of this? Yes, where God is not the one who's determining or establishing an identity. Yes, God is not the one who is some form of authority. Yes, uh, God is, for most people, in this new system, new system of human flourishing, belief in God is unimaginable. And if, by chance, someone does believe in God, God is just kind of up there to help me. Yes, with my human flourishing. But he's certainly not supposed to get in the way. And he's certainly not supposed to make any demands on us. And if we, we might very easily sit in church and say, oh, those poor people out there and the stuff that they believe. But unfortunately... This ideology or this way of looking at the world is so strong and it's so powerful 
that it permeates social media. It permeates the universities. It permeates the political arena. And please don't say it's only about the liberals. It is not about the, it's, it's, it's amongst conservatives and liberals and moder- moderates. Yes, it is pervasive. Yes, throughout the business world. And it is pervasive in the church. It is pervasive in the church. How many times have you heard? Yep. I'm just, you don't hear it in quite these words, but let's be blunt. Yeah, I'm just being, I'm a Christian and I go to church so I can realize my full potential. I go to Christ, I'm a Christian and go to church because I need God to provide financially for me. I need God to find me a husband. Yes. I need, you know, I need God to fix me up. And we very often have a therapeutic view, a, ther- a therapeutic Christianity. And again, which God isn't all that present and centered in the life of many believers. But, you know, he's an insurance policy and we can call upon him when we're in trouble because we know he's good and merciful. Kind of reminds me of the people of Israel, you know, during the time of the judges. Yeah, whenever things got going, whenever things were really bad, they would call upon the Lord. But in the meantime, they did what was right in their own eyes. And... The church itself, yes, in part, is corrupted with this kind of understanding. Now, if you want, to, if you want, if we want to ask the question biblically, with three thousand years of biblical tradition behind us, what is the purpose of life, or why are we here? What is the reason for our existence? It's pretty radically opposite than what most people today, most the average man or woman in the street might tell you. Yeah? Because I believe that the answer to that question is holiness. The reason, yes, that we're here is to become holy or to be a holy people. Now, I know holiness gets a bad rap, and oftentimes we, when we think in terms of holiness, we think only in terms of the honky-tonk sins, which is uh, not something that should be necessarily excluded. But holiness is not an end in itself. The goal of holiness, the goal of holiness is to enable us to enter in, yes, to a relationship with the Lord. To enter into that place of intimacy. To enter in, actually, not only to intimacy, but enter into a place of wholeness. Actually, the goal of holiness is human flourishing. It's not that God is somehow... a a mean old man who doesn't care about human needs. God actually does want us to flourish. If you read the book of Genesis, 
especially the opening chapters on creation in which God declares creation is good and tells human beings to be fruitful and multiply. He wants us to flourish. But his way of flourishing, yes, is not, yes, anywhere uh, you might say the, that, that, that highway or that road to flourishing, to God's flourishing, yes, to God's bringing us to a place of maturity and completeness is radically different than what we see in the world today. And the way that we go towards holiness, yes, the road of holiness is the road of discipleship. And that's what we read about. Yes, that's our reading from Matthew chapter 10. And all through the summer, we have numerous passages, okay, about, yes, that, well, numerous passages from Matthew's gospel that tell us who is Jesus and what does it mean to be his disciple. And uh, chapter 10 is, uh, is quite an amazing uh, verse, uh, chapter in and of itself because it starts, really it starts at the end of chapter 9, uh, and it tells us here that Jesus looks uh, out over the people, his own people, and he has compassion on them. He has compassion on them because they are lost. They are sheep without shepherds. And then it, he calls the disciples together, and he sends them out Yes, because he is heartbroken. Yes, for the human condition, the, con the spiritual condition of his own people. And he tells them, I want you to do certain things. And sometimes these certain things can seem a bit odd uh, or a bit unusual. But if you think about it for just a moment, this is, Jesus is asking his disciples, his emissaries, to do exactly what he's been doing, to live the exact same way and to expect, yes, the same consequences. So he calls 12 and he says, don't go to the towns of the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's what Jesus himself said earlier. He said, uh, I'm called to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later, he will send his disciples out to the nations. But surely Jesus, I don't surely is not the word, without question, Jesus understands, yes, that the people of Israel were chosen to serve the nations. That God revealed himself to Israel, and after revealing himself to Israel, Israel it was Israel's job to re reveal God to all the nations of the world. And then Jesus says, you know, preach the kingdom or, or proclaim the kingdom. And the kingdom, uh, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is healing the sick, cleansing those who have leprosy, driving out demons. Jesus tells his disciples to do exactly. It says, do not take uh, along any gold or silver. And uh, Jesus himself as he, as he went from place to place, actually relied on donations. And he relied on hospitality that uh, people gave him and his movement. 
Um, and then he goes on to say, you'll be arrested, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be flogged. And basically, these are all things that happened to Jesus. And in verse 21, it, it comes to uh, something very painful and sometimes very difficult. You will be rejected or perhaps only misunderstood by your own family, just as Jesus was misunderstood by his own family. Ooh, that hurts. And finally, not quite finally, Jesus makes it really clear in verse 23. He says, a student, which is a disciple, is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Yes, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. And then Jesus says, after telling them all these things, do not be afraid. And maybe we'll come back to the reassurances in a minute. And then finally, we go down a little bit, at least to the end of our reading. Again, he warns us, he did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And a sword here is not uh, to be understood as it sometimes has in past Christian history. It's not a justification for war, nor is this a justification for violence or launching a campaign or a crusade. It's simply to say that people will be divided, even members of a family, over Jesus himself. And again, painful and difficult. But even more difficult, he says, anyone who's not worthy of me, yes, or anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Because even though Jesus was flogged and rejected and brought before authorities, ultimately, he goes to the cross. And we have reduced discipleship to a program very often. And that program is can be a really good program. It can include things like memorizing Bible verses, hiding God's word in our heart. That's a wonderful thing to do. Participating in prayer meetings, sharing our faith with other people, serious Bible study. Those are great things. But ultimately, ultimately, discipleship is about carrying a cross. It's about, and here I don't think Jesus is talking about literal death, although that has happened in Christian history at different times or in the history of the church, but it's about self-denial. That's what it means to be a disciple. Yes, not always to get our own way. to put Jesus and his priorities first. Or in the words of the last single released by you 2 yes, get out of your own way. Meaning, 
shrink back or pull back. So the way of the cross is the way of discipleship. And ultimately, it's very interesting, is it not? Jesus says, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. If you try to, if you give your life away, actually, you will gain it. Now think about the world in which we live. The world in which we live, this idea of human flourishing, this idea of you know, wanting to develop, wanting to be unique, wanting to be an individual, all of this has become the goal for hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people. This is the only goal. Now, maybe it hasn't come to the Middle East or come to Asia, uh, parts of Asia, but it is certainly the dominant, dominant way of thinking and living in the West. And guess what the enemy of human flourishing is? The enemy is death. Because when you get to the grave, all the courses of self-improvement that you took, all the hours you spent in the gym, all the special diets you went on, all the music lessons you took, they're gone. You've lost. By the way, in the process, yes, in the process, this world of... uh, of, you might say, this world that is absorbed or focused, you know, on the I, me, me, mine is a world that's empty. And there's no real ultimate meaning to life. And there's no ultimate meaning and life becomes mundane. And people do kind of struggle or they do kind of think about transcendence, to think about somehow God But because of the world in which we live and the ideology and the lie and deception, it's hard for us, hard for many people to believe. Yes. But what's the opposite? The opposite is that if we give ourselves away, if we live for others, if Um, what shall we say, Um, uh, flourishing, self-flourishing, yes, isn't the goal. And we weep with those who weep or we forgive those who offend us or we love our enemies or we're willing to take the back seat and not the front seat. That the message of Jesus is that when we do these things, actually life becomes more precious and life actually becomes more valuable. And even as we'll read next week, even something as simple as giving a cup of water to a disciple of Jesus, someone on the mission, someone in the Jesus movement, has an eternal reward. 
meaning our sacrifice or giving of ourselves. Yes, the ability to glory in our weakness because that is when we glory in the cross and the foolishness of the cross. These have eternal consequences in the lives of people and ultimately when we stand before God the Father. And by the way, it's not all about what happens when we get to heaven because Jesus, uh, in both Matthew and Luke's gospel, he tells the the disciples, there is a reward for following me. And some of the reward is in this life, and some of the reward is in the life to come. And so, discipleship, and the way of a disciple, stands in contradiction Yes, to the society, to the culture, yes, to the spirit of the age in which we live. And I'd just like to remind you, yes, of one or two, uh, one or two other things. Um, because it's the how, not just the what, that, uh, you know, that is in that is extremely important. And it's important for us to remember because again, we, can t- we also can be easily influenced by the culture in which we live. The spirit of the age is in the drinking water and it's in the air that we breathe. And so if our culture and, the, and Hollywood especially and all the pop songs tells us, you know, Follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. Discipleship tells us, you know, exactly the opposite. Actually, discipleship tells us to follow somebody, to follow a person. And that person has authority. And that person, that we actually should model our lives, yes, on that person. We should be mentored by that person. We should imitate that person, not so that our personality disappears, because God uh, loves diversity and he made uh, each one of us different. And God forbid that we would become clones or we would act alike or dress alike or think alike. That becomes a cult. And the God of heaven and earth does not... uh, want a bunch of cult followers, even though some religious movements, you know, might suggest otherwise. Yes, we're not constructing our own identity. Instead, we affirm the identity found in Genesis that we're made uh, in the image of God. And we are called to be followers of Jesus. We are called to respond to, the, to Jesus who invites each one of us with these words, come and follow me. That's where we take our identity, in God and in Christ. We um, don't decide or choose what we want to believe. Yes, but instead, we not only... Uh, take the words of scripture as authority but we follow the the teaching of the apostles 
and the teaching of the apostles that has been handed down from generation to generation uh, in the church itself. And we live in a time, we live in a time, yes, which, in which the individual is king. We live uh, in an age, even in the church, which people can say, I don't do church. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I have my own thing going with Jesus. Uh, I, I watch Hillsongs on YouTube, and, uh, you know, I serve myself communion. But I, I don't want to belong to any kind of a church. Yes. This is... Um, very popular in the world in which we live, but by the standards and the teaching of the New Testament, it's a lie. If we reject the people of Jesus, if we reject his community, if we refuse, yes, to um, be a part of the church, we really can't be Christians, nor can we be followers of Jesus. It's absolutely impossible. It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and have no accountability. It doesn't work. Oh, part of our age, everything has to be authentic. Yes, I've got to be me. I've got to let my messiness hang out. I've got to show you my brokenness. I have to show you how dysfunctional I am. I have to confess to you my sin, you know, how I cheated on my wife or, you know, how I, you know, uh, rigged the exam my law school examination. And so confession is in. Confession is in. And a part of this, by the way, is doubt. <laughs> if you doubt something, especially if you doubt religion, or you doubt Christianity, or you somehow, you were a Republican and then you reject it. You were an evangelical and you say, now I'm finished with it for one reason or another. Then you become a hero. There's nothing heroic, heroic about doubt. It exists and we should, as a community, understand people who are going through doubts we shouldn't turn them into heroes. So confession is big because it's a part of authenticity. But what's missing in all of this is repentance and transformation. Look at all the... If you're British, read the Daily Mail where you can read all these confessions, right, Freya? And all the smut and all the dirt about people. And people are pretty much proud of what they've done. Or rarely do you ever hear anyone expressing remorse because they walked out on their wife. Yes. Or they left their kids. Or whatever, you know, whatever it was. There's no repentance and there's no transformation. Yes. The beginning, the beginning of discipleship the way that we enter the kingdom of heaven is through repentance. And we follow Jesus and imitate him and model our lives on his life or on those, who, uh, those in our lives who uh, 
successfully follow Jesus in order to be transformed. So what do we say to a world that's really not all that interested in God? Not all that interested perhaps in transformation, maybe, uh, to a world that um, virtually lives in a closed system, although sometimes there are echoes of transcendence, echoes of the gospel, of, of Jesus, of the presence of God that people have radically pushed out of their lives. Well, I think the first and foremost is that um, we as a church and as a community, we need to purify ourselves. We need to make sure that uh, we have not bought into the lie. Now, when I say we haven't bought it, I, I don't mean that everything in modern culture is bad. There's a lot of wonderful aspects uh, of the world in which we live. Not all art or music is bad, something, something that we should shun. Uh, a lot of this has come to us through uh, the understanding of therapy. Therapy in and of itself is not bad. It actually can be quite helpful if uh, put to the right use. So I'm not rejecting all of that. But, this, but the lie that we're here to be happy and that the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of self-fulfillment is the main goal that's what we need to reject. And we need to realize that we're in a battle. There is an ideological war going on. Now, I don't like the fact that there's an ideological war. Uh, it seems, especially to me, very daunting because this is an incredibly, incredibly big, yes, ideology. Uh, and humanly speaking, they have all the, all the resources, yes, at their disposal. The press, big tech, the business communities, the political systems of the world. You know, it's a little bit like David and Goliath in the Valley of Elah. Yes. What do we do? In the men's group, we're reading 2 Corinthians. And this week, I was struck by 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we have these words. Paul talking to the church there that is questioning his, questioning his authority. He says, uh, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The weapons of our warfare, we are in a war. And let's pretend that we're not. And by the way, the casualties are many. And the damage 
yes, uh, is disastrous because in this world of uh, desiring self-flourishing or desiring human flourishing and nothing more comes confusion and chaos that destroys the lives of millions of people. And so, what do we do? Notice the war here is not about the demonic. It's not about waving a banner and blowing a shofar and hoping, you know, that uh, this, is, um, this is our form of uh, spiritual warfare. It's ideological. And it says that we confront these strongholds. What is a stronghold? Stronghold is not only a fortress, but the same Greek word that means a fortress means um, a um, prison, and it's related to the word tomb. And it's a beautiful analogy of where, yes, the human, uh, maybe tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, yes, uh, can be found. They're in a prison, which ultimately will be a tomb. And it says we take captive. Now, what is how the, the word take captive there in Greek is that we attack with a spear, meaning we go on the offensive. And if we think about it for a moment, what's the only offensive weapon mentioned in the New Testament, spiritually speaking? Yes. What is it? Right. The sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. Yeah. It is the scripture and the word of God, yes, that will cause these ideologies to fall. Now, again, it'd be really easy to think, I'm going out there and I'm going to preach to them. I'm going to show them this verse in John and they're going to fall on their knees and they're going to be convinced. Now, that may be true in some cases. But my dear friends, if we want to present the truth, if we really want to present an alternative to the um, dead end of human flourishing, yes, where there's no transcendence and no God and no understanding where human good comes from, and no understanding of beauty or the purpose of life, then we better live the truth. It's not just about speaking the truth. It's about providing and showing, yes, a very viable alternative to life. It's about showing that picking up a cross, which seems foolish and counterintuitive, actually brings meaning and significance to life. That sacrifice, self-denial, suffering actually brings joy, not misery. It actually brings holiness, which brings us into a place of freedom. So remember, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if you keep on being my disciple, if you keep on following me, if you keep on imitating me, if you model yourself after me, if you do what I do, 
yes, which is a process, then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Quote the whole verse. Yes, quote the whole verse. Set me free from what? Anxiety about my future? Yes. The need to have the latest new car and be cool? You know, the being locked up in bitterness, having, pri- having my pride and ego control, you know, my family life and mess things up. Free me from my pornography addiction. Free me from my racism or my ethnic nationalism that I have to take an identity from, you know, from such a thing and give me an identity in God and an identity, identity in Christ. It's when we live that out that we'll provide the alternative. And that is indeed our challenge. Yes, it is indeed that in this ideological war, we need to preach the truth, but just as importantly, we need to live the truth. As it says, not only in John's gospel, but in the epistles, yes, it talks about us doing the truth. And so may God give us grace and mercy, yes, not to shrink back, not to lose confidence in the gospel, and confidence in the cross itself. And may God give us, yes, by the way, may God give us mercy and power not to compromise. And may he give us the, you know, that power you know, to be intentional and live out our discipleship. Amen.